guys are really good about getting out in front and preparing sermons in advance and having a sermon in their pocket ready to go. I just, I've never been able to do that. For me, it's always just preparing one thing at a time, unless I'm doing a revival or something and just kind of speaking what God has on my heart um, at that time or what I've been studying or whatever series we're going through. But God did, uh, I believe, lead me to uh, one of my favorite verses this morning um, in 1 John. So, uh, 1 John, what we'll do is we'll, uh, this morning will kind of be a little more of a running commentary. Don't have it all lined out exactly, so kind of bear with me there. But we're going to focus on verse 9, but we will we'll read the first eight verses up to that. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of be studying that as we go along uh, until we get to verse 9. And in verse 9, we will dig in a little bit. Um, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray for Adam, our brother, our friend, um, one of our shepherds here at this church among this people. We pray that you would um, heal him this morning, that you would uh, be with him through the pain, and that you would help the doctors to figure out what is going on with him, and that we pray that it's nothing um, so serious. But Father, we, uh, we pray most of all this morning that you would be glorified. We are all sinners in this room. There's none of us that are fit in our flesh, because in our, our flesh there's no good thing. And so none of us are fit to be here this morning, to sit and to worship you, to have any leg to stand on that says we in and of ourselves are worthy or righteous. But we praise you this morning because you have made us worthy in your sight through the blood of the Lamb. And you have had mercy on us. And it is you who we bow to this morning. And I pray, God, that as we hear your words, that all of us in this room, especially me, God, would leave here today. And, God, we would take that humility, take that humbling of ourselves before your lordship, that we would take it into our daily lives, that we would trust you enough to obey and to follow your words and your commands, and that, God, it would be pleasing in your sight and that it would advance your kingdom and bring people into your kingdom. And God, we thank you for the freedom to worship this morning. We pray your blessing over our study of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this semester I, had a, I have a really neat new opportunity that was uh, given to me. Um, the principal of Westside Christian School approached me and uh, one of their Bible teachers had to, for different reasons, had to, to drop out. He was teaching a 7th and 8th grade Bible course, a 40-minute short, shortest class they, they've got, um, 40 minutes early in the morning. And uh, it would be 7th and 8th graders, 26 kids, m just Monday through Thursday. Um, on Thursday, I just give a test, and so really there's only three days of teaching. But uh, as Ann Claire and I talked about this, we just thought, man, what an opportunity for discipleship. And... Um, I do want to say a word about that, not to, to, to toot my own horn, but to make, since I've got a little time this morning, I do want to, to put this out there. Um, so my family's involved in our homeschooling group that meets here at the church. 
Um, I'm involved in our public school mentoring program, which many of you are involved in as well, and, and some of you are involved in the homeschool group as well here. And now I'm teaching a Bible class at, at Westside part-time. Um, and on top of that, working with our youth. And I think that's of, of God. But the message that it says to me is, there are a lot of different schooling options out there that a lot of good people take. And in our church, we're not going to be prejudiced with one or the other. Everybody's got their own ideas. Obviously, each of you will do what you are able to do, do what you can do. There, I think ideas need to be discussed and debated as long as we're civil and we're gentle and we're loving toward each other and we understand that there's good people doing each option to try to raise their kids the best that they can. But I would hope that not one of these things, these different schooling options would come become the identity of our church and a, a point of contention between us, but that we would have mutual respect and love for one another and that we'd be, we'd be able to have conversations um, in a Christian way and respect, even though we may disagree, respect other people's decisions to parent their children as best that they can, or maybe the only way they can. And so that's a free sermon. But one of the things I do want to say, though, is every schooling option and every background and every circumstance that a child or a teenager comes through has their own particular set of concerns or difficulties. Um, each schooling option has different opportunities. So, for instance, I, I'm able to teach Bible at Westside. But one of the things I found out there, without giving too much information away, is that although there are some children who, then they got it. They've got Christianity. They understand the basics. There are also a lot of kids there who cannot explain basic Christianity to you. They cannot. And they have sat through Sunday school after Sunday school after Sunday school and church service after church service after church service and they have been to a Christian school and they don't know the basis of Christianity. And the same could be said for a homeschooling child or a public school child. There are two things that I want to I say there is one, we have to make sure as Christian parents that we are doing, and grandparents and friends, that we're doing the best we can to communicate so that they can articulate the basic truths of following Jesus. Amen? But we cannot stop there because the mind is not the only place that we need to touch or that needs to be touched. You can have some of the most intelligent, knowledgeable, trivia-ready kids when it comes to the Bible, but their heart may not be right with God. They may not know Jesus. And so, ultimately, we have to come before God and pray that He will save and that He will change hearts because the heart is the real battlefield. One of the questions, and the reason I, I got onto this, this tangent was, one of the questions that I received two weeks ago was, 
Mr. Bullock, can we lose our salvation? And that's kind of what I want to talk to you this morning about in this passage. Can we lose our salvation? And this came from a student that I think had, you know, may know the Lord, but just goes to show you that sometimes we, we have doubts about what we believe, and sometimes what we believe is not as firm as it needs to be. And that's what the Apostle John is doing here. He is coming to these believers, and he's, he's answering a lot of different questions. But one of the questions that he does answer in this book is, can I lose my salvation in Christ? And so we began to look at that question, but before we, we answered that question, although I gave them a few, a few reasons, we had to back up and we had to look at the question of what is salvation in the first place? Maybe the question we're asking is off. So let's read verses 1 through 5 of 1 John. Is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Let's don't go to verse 4. This is written, most people think, by the Apostle John, who saw Jesus murdered on the cross, who was with Him day by day during His ministry for three years, who was with Him at the resurrection, after the resurrection, when He appeared to them and, he's, and He allowed them to touch the, the holes and the scars in His hands and feet. And what he is doing here is he's, he's being very poetic. If you're not careful, you'll, you'll miss what he is saying here. He's writing to a group of believers. We don't know exactly who, but he is, he is trying to strengthen their doctrine, what they believe. He is trying to uh, increase their devotion to God. He's trying to, to fire them up for Jesus and to give them a true passion for Jesus. He's trying to help them walk in a way that God would have them to walk. But here's what he starts with. He starts with, the gospel. And here's what he says. Back in verse 1, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Now, some people will think, some people think when they read this that what he's talking about is actual eternal life that he's talking about the quality of life that we will have with God the fact that we can be saved and I would say that's definitely true but he is poetically alluding to Jesus here you have to see that because he talks about touching it with his hands he's not he's talking about Jesus he's saying that Jesus is the eternal life when we're talking about Jesus we're not just talking about a process Merely. We're not just talking about a program. We're not just talking about some religious activity that we do, something that we check off, some action that we do just to, to clean us, to clear us with God. Salvation is a person, not a program or performance. It's a person. And it's Jesus. And Jesus is with the Father. And certainly with Him comes a quality of life, eternal life. But He's with the Father and He was made manifest to us and John goes on and he says in verse 3 that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is a fellowship. It is a fellowship with Jesus Christ and His Father and His people. It's all of that rolled into one. It is knowing and having a personal relationship with Christ. It is not a religious activity. It is not a church you belong to. It is not a service that you attend. It is not a label that you put on yourself. It is a person that you know. Amen? It must be that. Or you have nothing at all. And John is talking about this. And this is a glorious thing. This isn't dull or boring. This is fellowship. That beautiful word where everybody gets together and brings different kinds of food from their house. I'm just kidding. But even then, we like those kind of fellowship. Well, most of us, most of us that like to eat. We love those kind of fellowships. But this is, this is like the biblical definition of fellowship. This is, this is community. This is intimacy. This is being one with one another. This is peace. This is harmony. This is mission. This is adventure. This is family. This is life. This is what it was all meant to be. And it's all wrapped up into fellowship with Jesus. Salvation is knowing and having a relationship with this person named Jesus. And so, verse 4, John says this, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy, John's joy and the people that he's writing to, our joy may be complete. I, I have to confess that joy in salvation is not enough a part of my life. You know, I think one of the reasons that people don't want to come to church is that the church people don't seem joyful enough in Jesus. And I'm guilty of that. When we as God's people are so prone to sin or we are so prone to dissatisfaction and we are so routine about our relationship with Jesus, and we have not been close to Him and let our relationship with Him become more and more joyful, no wonder people look at that in their first judgment, although wrong, their first judgment might be, that's not for me and that's not something that I want. But John says, we're writing this to you so that our joy, which is not complete yet, will be complete. The purpose is joy. And so this question of can, my, can I lose my salvation, um, a lot of times that comes when we're not joyful. And it ought to be the other way around. We ought to approach this question and the answer ought to be joyful. A lot of times we, we approach this question in fear. But it ought to be approached with joy. A quote I gave a couple weeks ago by a well-known preacher said that Christians are at the same time the, the most sorrowful people and the most joyful. They are most sorrowful because they have a, true, a truer understanding of their sin, understanding of the curse of sin, understanding of pain and suffering and things like that. But at the same time, they have joy in the midst of all of that because they know the God of joy. And so they are sorrowful and yet joyful and John wants us to be joyful but a lot of times when we 
ask the question, can I lose my salvation? It's because there's fear in our hearts and we definitely don't feel joy. It's either because we've sinned or we, we're doubting God or something like that. And that's why what John has written to us is so, so helpful. Let's read on in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Let's stop there. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's the kind of verse of scripture that makes you ask the question, am I saved? Do I know Christ? Have I lost my salvation? These questions that the Baptists ask a lot. And indeed, it's, it's true. We are supposed to examine ourselves to see whether we're Christians or not. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He also uh, elsewhere said to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we have to notice what he said he said to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. He goes on in verse 8 to say this. He says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And see, I love that. I love that because he's balancing this here. What Paul is saying, he's not saying this. If you sin, then you don't know Jesus. What Paul is saying is, if you have a persistent pattern of sinning and you don't want to change there's nothing in you that wants to change then there's a problem that you're making God out to be a liar and that you don't know Jesus but if there is a spirit in you that wants to change you're not going to be perfect in this life you're going to sin I'm going to sin and if you say you have no sin you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. And so I think there's a balancing act there. The Bible wants us to examine ourselves to see whether we're really a Christian, but it also doesn't want us to have this constant idea of fearing that we're losing our salvation because of each little sin that, that we do, or big sin that we do, or doubt of God. Now, why is that? Why is, why is John trying to to put us in the middle is because he has a correct understanding of salvation. Let's look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now in John's day... In John's day, there was a heresy. And one of the reasons he wrote this book is because in John's day, there were some people who thought that they could be saved by knowledge. They were called Gnostics. And they claimed that they had this supernatural knowledge from God, but it wasn't a knowledge unto salvation. It wasn't a knowledge about how Jesus could save them. It was about perfectionism. It was about realizing the divine potential within them. 
Sounds like a lot of Hollywood mumbo-jumbo that we hear today. That's the basic of a lot of different religions. Realize your potential and try to get better. And the Gnostics, they would claim that they had a new light, a new knowledge that put them in a different category, that allowed them to rise to that potential and to achieve their own kind of salvation. And you know, we do the same kind of thing in churches today. There are a lot of people that come to church to get better. And that's it. They come to church in order to, to um, soothe their consciences because they feel like if they participate in a religious activity, then they've done a work that somehow removes the guilt from them. Um, or they realize, I've got to have my family in church because that's just the upstanding good thing that you do in a culture. You take your family to church and you learn about morals and you learn about how to love each other and love your neighbor and how to work hard and how to serve your community and all these kind of things that, that, that we're definitely behind, but only with the right foundation, only with the right root of why we're doing them. Here's what Paul says. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, now this word confess here, who is he talking to? Confess to who? Well, he doesn't say who we are to confess our sins to, but it's pretty reasonable that he's talking primarily, although the Bible certainly says that we need to confess sins to different people if we sin against somebody. There's plenty of passages that talk about that, but since this is dealing with God cleansing us, it makes more sense to say that, that we are confessing our sins to him. And so this is John saying, he's saying that, that as far as your identity goes in Christ, if you want to become a Christian, you need to confess your sins to God. Now what does that word confession mean? Well, it's not just saying, speaking, that you did wrong. Inherent in this definition, what John is getting at the heart here is a heart of repentance. It's a heart that, because he's speaking, as a contrast to these Gnostics, who would, some of them would say, we don't have sin, we've never sinned. Look at verse 10, he said, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the attitude that Paul is saying here with this word confess is, realize you're guilty. You are guilty. You're guilty. Your mama's guilty. Your daddy's guilty. Your coach is guilty. The person at the grocery store is guilty. Everybody's guilty. You are guilty. Admit that. Confess it to God. And it also has with it an attitude of repentance. I don't want this anymore, God. I am guilty. I don't want this anymore. And it also has with it an attitude of, of helplessness. I confess I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. I am guilty. And so all of this is wrapped up in this word, confess. And so the first step in, in salvation is confessing that we are sinners and that we need Jesus. You know, when I was, uh, when I was growing up, we, uh, my parents still live, we live on a, a dirt road. And for those of you that live on dirt roads out in the county, you realize that sometimes when it rains... It can wash out the road, or the ditches can get really muddy. And every now and then, infrequently, we would have somebody going down a dirt road. Usually it was a teenager that got a car. It was somebody in their 20s trying to, you know, be funny, or it was somebody just got in a hurry. 
but they would slip off the road into that ditch. And you know what happens when you get off into that ditch on a dirt road is you don't typically get out. Sometimes your, your car will get stuck on it. And most people that have not been stuck a lot in cars, what's the first mistake they try to make? They floor it. They try to hit that gas. And what happens? <clears throat> they go down deeper. It's the same thing with our sin, y'all. When we try to take care of our own sin, when we try to gas it, it doesn't do anything else but get us deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble. And so they would, they would knock at the door and, and they would say, uh, hey, I got stuck and uh, can I call somebody? And we'd say, man, we've got a tractor. We'll just go down there and pull you out. And so we'd go down there and we'd pull them out and then they'd try to pay us. And we'd say, no, no. If we were pulling 25 cars out a day, yeah, we might start charging, but, but this is okay, man. This is just, it's, it's grace. Be free. <laughs> Let your car be free. And uh, just don't do it again. And uh, that's an example of grace. God comes and he gets us out. And you know what? That's the problem we get into when we start examining our salvation. We start questioning our salvation. Is We look at evidence of why we're saved, which we should, but we only look at ourselves. And we look to see whether we're perfect or whether we've sinned or whether we've lived up to God's standard. And granted, Paul does say we need to examine ourselves, but in 2 Corinthians, he goes on to say, don't you know whether or not Christ Jesus is in you? We often examine our salvation like a religious person. And we're looking to see whether we've kept the rules rather than do we possess the rule giver? Do we know Christ? And is He changing us day by day? A Christian can sin. The Apostle John here, he talks about his own sin. We'll never be free of sin this side of heaven. And though we should be burdened about our sin, and we should run from it, we should fight it, and we should battle it, whether or not we've kept all the rules perfectly is never a good way to examine whether we're saved or not. We need to look at what God has done for us and what He is doing for us in our lives. One thing you can do is you can take the persons of the Trinity. This isn't in verse 9. We're going to get to the one that verse 9 speaks about. But you can look at the Father in John 10. In John 10, the Bible says that the Father has us in His hand and that no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. It's an issue of authority. They cannot, no one can, take you from My hand if you are My child. If I have bought you, you belong to Me. You can take a look at the Son. You can look at the blood of Jesus Christ and you can make, though this is a, an argument from reason, you can reason if there is no sin so big that Jesus could not pay for it and earn my salvation, then there is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot pay for. It cannot be taken away. And so you can look at the Son. And you can look at the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about the Spirit sealing us. That the Spirit is a is a, a down payment, a payment of earnest in our lives. That it, he seals us in our relationship with Christ. And those three things that I mentioned have nothing to do with you or me. They have everything to do with the power and the accomplishments and the purpose of God. And we come to a similar thing here in verse 9. There is such great assurance here. <clears throat> If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at that word faithful. I love that God is faithful. Why does it say that He's faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Because He's made a promise to. If we have turned to Him, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 3, 16, verse which you all know, God in this way loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. At the root of Christianity, my friends, is that God has made promises to you. And it is not promises to make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Paul was poor and was martyred, and so were the rest of the disciples. Sometimes following Jesus will cost you, as it's cost so many believers in Ukraine, for instance. And the things that they have lost, the homes they've lost, the friends and family they've lost. At the root of Christianity is not what we have done for God, not what we have promised to God. It's what God has promised to us and the promises that He will keep in spite of the fact that we are so bad sometimes and so off. Yet He is good and He is faithful. Notice the two part, two, two parts that He's faithful in. He's faithful to forgive us of our sin and, this is what I like, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just to clear us temporarily, but to get it out of us. Not just to legally declare that they're okay, but to actually do something in our lives to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that cleansing will be complete when Jesus returns again. This is the promise of the Gospel. We do not have to be saved every single time we commit a sin. If that's the way we're interpreting this verse, if we're going that way, do you realize that let me point this, do you realize that if you are a Christian, you no longer have to ask for forgiveness to be saved, uh, to be saved for, uh, for your sins. We do that sometimes, but ultimately the question is has Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins past, present, and future or hasn't he? And yet sometimes in our, our prayers we'll say, Father, forgive me where I've failed you. He's already forgiven us. We need to stop praying that. Now I know what people mean when they pray that. Sometimes we fail and we need God to, to fix us, but really what we're saying is I'm repenting, God. I know I've been forgiven, but I'm repenting. We need to understand the finality of how God has forgiven us past, present, and future sins. This is believing the promise of God. Some of you, even as I said that, you struggle with believing that. Well, I believe that He paid for my past sins, but it's the ones that I, I'm scared I'm going to commit or the ones I have committed that I don't know if He's going to pay for. That's not believing the Gospel. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse is not... Something that, this is, this is talking about when you first become a Christian. In Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6, 
God says, he that began a good work in you, or Paul says, he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You need to see salvation as a work that God has begun in you. And he is faithful to keep his word. This verse of Scripture has so much security in it for us. And security brings joy. Now, some people will wrongly, they'll take that once saved, always saved uh, cliche, and they'll use that to expose grace. They'll, they'll take advantage of grace, and it won't ever touch their hearts. And they, they won't ever, those people don't know Christ. If you know Christ and you love Christ, you won't want to sin. And the deepest part of you will hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. And so we need to see salvation as a process that God has begun in us. A new birth that God will grow in us throughout our lives. He is faithful. And one of the reasons that John tells us this is because security in Christ should not bring us an excuse to go sin more. It should bring us security and joy that we know God. Finally, look at the word just. He is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is He just? He's just because God cannot overlook our sin. Um, the question is, how can God forgive a sinner? In our culture, one of the barriers that you're going to face with sharing the gospel with people is people don't think that God really cares about sin. They think as long as they're not Adolf Hitler, they're going to be okay. And what you have to do is you have to convince them and show them through God's Word that sin is a serious, serious thing and that all sin will be punished. Every single sin will be punished. And it will either be punished by you or it will be punished by Jesus. How can God be just and let a sinner like you and me go free? He can be just because He punishes the sin in Jesus. It's because the blood of Jesus is a currency that has bought our freedom. It's a currency that was paid not to Satan, but to God Himself in order to make you and I free in Christ. And so this morning, as I close, I just want to say this. If you're struggling with your salvation, believe the promises of God. Know that He is faithful. Know that there is no sin that you can do that will separate you from the love of Jesus. But let that love and let that knowledge of Him draw you closer to Him so that you will not sin. And know that you can be forgiven because Jesus bled and died on a cross for you. If you are not saved this morning, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not have that fellowship, that personal relationship with Him, today is the day of salvation. Ask, and you will receive. He will forgive you, set you free, and make you His. Let's stand and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the security that You have given us. We thank You for sealing us with Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for sending Your Son to die for us. God, I know all of us, I know there are some in this room, God, 
who because of their struggle with sin or because of circumstances in their life, they are doubting whether they know you. God, I pray you would strengthen them. If there's somebody in this room today, God, that does not know you, help them to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. Maybe they don't know you. Maybe that's the reason they're here today. Is because all of their lives have been assuming that they know Jesus. But maybe they've, it's not really dawned on them. They've never really asked for forgiveness. They've never really humbled themselves and received what you're wanting to give to them. May today be the day. God, help us all, Lord, to keep in mind, to keep at the front of our minds your faithfulness. That it's not about us, it's about you and what you've done for us. And that's why we praise you, that's why we love you, that's why we adore you, that's why we trust in you. There is no one like you, there is no one who has been so good to us. You are our God, our Savior, our hope, and our friend. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.